Hello and welcome to Grape Minds, a wine-centric podcast that looks at the wine world through the bottom of a wine glass. The tinted lens focuses on history, the culture, and the people behind the elixir of life that we enjoy so much. We also look through the top of the wine glass and the side a few times as yeah, well. Over the top. Yeah. Uh, I'm Gina Birch. This is Women's History Month, and today we're talking with a woman who's uh, making her own sort of history and looking into the future with a passion project um, from four people who just might love wine a little more than Julie and I do. I don't know if that's really possible, but well, it could be possible. Well, there, there are four people. of them and two of us. So. Yes, I guess their cumulative love for cumulative, wine might yeah. be uh, more than mine. <laughs> so, Nicole, I don't know if you remember us, but... But we met you a couple years ago, pre-pandemic, at, I don't know if it was a trade tasting or a festival event or something like that, but you were there with an old friend of mine, Susan Canapelle. And uh, she says, you have to meet Nicole. So there we were chatting it up, like like old friends. And man, we had a good time, didn't we? Yeah. Welcome to the show. What an absolute pleasure to be with you, ladies. And I can assure you, Nobody forgets meeting Gina and Julie when they come up to <laughs> see you on their trade stand. And believe me, I meet a lot of people. And uh, you ladies have such a special personality, such a special presence. And the way you are so knowledgeable about wine, but so able to put people at ease is a real treat. So thank you. So Nicole has Chen Bleu. And I, we said that properly, right? Almost, yeah. We're working on Bleu. Bleu. The French pronunciation for blue, but Chen, Chen Bleu is perfect. Chen Bleu. You can call it anything you want as long as it's not Chen Bleu. bleu. <laughs> no, it will never be Bleu. It'll be Bleu. It's so not Bleu. Beautiful wines uh, that, that you're making. Tell us a little bit about the the winery, how you got started. I mean, I know there's we're going to throw a bunch of questions at you as we go on through the interview, but just kind of give us an overview. Origin story. Yeah. Well, actually, I got uh, dragged into this by my husband. I thought that uh, it was a silly, stupid game because I had always heard what a tough business the wine business was. And I thought that it was very unlikely that um, he could have discovered this little hidden gem way up in the mountains that uh, suddenly had been overlooked by all these French people. And then he could just show up one day and find this incredible property that could make Grand Cru. But I'm very excited to to have been proven wrong. Yes, he we are too. <laughs> for, yeah. uh, he had been looking for wine property for a long time uh, because a lot of his family was in winemaking in the Jura region. And uh, some of you may know the Domaine Rollet from the Jura. It's a very traditional artisanal family. Anyway, uh, he was in more traditional places, Chateauneuf and uh, uh, Burgundy. And then his parents had retired to that area in the Mont Ventoux. Some of you, uh, I mean, I don't know, have you visited the, around there? I yes, and, I've been to Mont yes, Ventoux. I didn't oh, ride my bike up there. I mean, that's like a big cycling area. And uh, boy, that, that was impressive. Yeah, this is a little insider's tip is they have those fabulous electric bikes now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> change game. Yes, please. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's incredible because it sort of juts out of this very flat plain, like a bit like Fujiyama in Japan, and they call it the giant of Provence. And what's exciting is that in the, in the foothills and on the flanks of the Mont Ventoux, there are these incredibly... Uh, unusual vineyards that have all that sun of the Provençal uh, region with uh, the, the same amount of sun and rain as you get in, say, Chateauneuf-du-Pape, 
However, being up in the mountains, you're suddenly going to get that coolness, that freshness that's so hard to come by in the valley. So he knew enough about wine to be uh, super excited when he saw this convergence of things that came together at this property. It was completely abandoned. He saw the picture in a, in a window of a real estate shop and he was like, oh my God, what's that weird thing? How is it possible that you can get 30 hectares of, uh, of, of vines with 130 hectares of vineyards? So that's about 450 acres of, of forest all around. Uh, for the same price as a couple of hectares in Chateauneuf-du-Pape. So it was that curiosity of thinking, this doesn't make sense. There's a ninth century priory, an amazing uh, natural forest, this huge vineyard, all for the same price of this little thing. Where's the catch? And well, yeah, what is the catch? <laughs> yeah, there was a catch. We'll get to <laughs> okay, that. All right, good. But instead of going with the group think and thinking that there was some problem there, he decided to go see for himself. And it, it was covered with vines. It was a bit of a sleeping beauty. Uh, no one had touched anything for a long time there and had been stuck in an inheritance feud. But he realized that there was this incredible potential. And he decided, listen, since there must be a catch, maybe I'll just make a bid for 50% of the price and take my chances. And lo and behold, they call him back the next day and they're like, well done, thank you, sign here before you change your mind. Wow. Uh -oh. <laughs> thought, oh my God, what have I, what have I got myself into? And it turns out that it, it did take a really long time to fix the place up, but uh, the potential was certainly there. And, and now we're very excited that a lot of other people are, are coming to the region and looking for these abandoned high altitude places that uh, have really, really special convergence of factors, but they also have, um, for the price of the land, you can get Grand Cru quality. Uh, you just have to put in the sweat equity. It's a bit like if you live in a big city and some people always wanna live on Park Avenue and have uh, a tiny apartment and some people wanna get that abandoned railroad warehouse or something and turn it into these really cool lofts, right? There's always gonna be someone who wants to do that work and end up with something quite unique and someone who prefers the thing that already has the pedigree. So you kind of pioneering that area then because you guys have gone in there and you've said, this is what we're doing. And now we've got the proof it's in the bottle of, of what it can do. So I really don't want to take undue credit for having had that vision because I was the naysayer at the time. <laughs> you were the one that got thought, dragged along, oh kicking God, and screaming. 25 years to turn this around, you know, what am I doing? And uh, actually now it's so interesting because not only uh, are people recognizing the quality of the Ventoux, but also the world has, has changed. My husband is a major conservationist and he, he got very excited about sustainable viticulture way before that was all a hashtag. And so suddenly there's a sort of rediscovery of places that have incredible biodiversity, incredible protection, pure, you know, clean air, pure water, all that stuff that is uh, at a huge premium these days and uh, people used to take for granted or, or not uh, really uh, attribute an, enough importance to. So uh, that was really uh, very, very exciting is to see people are now caring more and more about how wine is made, whether the people looking after the land or being good guardians of the earth or looking after uh, the water and, and, uh, and the animals. And so the, the Ventoux is a UNESCO biosphere. 
it has unique fauna and flora that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And so people come from from everywhere now to study this crazy biodiversity that you have and also the soils that you don't find anywhere um, because I don't know if you've seen the map there, but you know, it's the, where the bottom of Europe has smashed into the top of Africa and pushed the edge of the African plate on its side. So you have Jurassic, Triassic, Cretaceous all turned sideways. So you're on this ridge and there are very few places in the world where vines get to grow right on the uh, on the ridge of a of a tectonic plate there's a, if you think of the famous american vineyard of course ridge uh, yeah. they there are a couple places in the world where that happens but it's very exciting for winemakers because it has that fabulous uh, geological complexity which translates into a kind of a, a mineral seasoning in the wine that it's a bit like when you're when you're cooking, you ladies like to cook, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and eat. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> the seasoning is really uh, crucial uh, to the recipe. And so the, the, the soils can really use, play that, that function of giving, giving it extra flavoring to the wine. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. I'm just thinking about the strata of these like little stripes of different periods of thousands and thousands and thousands of years in between. Yeah, that's got to really be uh, fun for a winemaker. So your chief role, as described on the website, is chief plate spinner. So (laughs) (laughs) you're the one juggling things and then kind of being like the public face, like the ambassador of the winery to the world. Well, it's a tiny team and uh, we all do a lot of everything, of course, although through the years we've sort of found our our place and... uh, we're very lucky because when we started, um, my my husband had this passion, but his sister was a viticulturalist, a, a vintner, and her husband was a winemaker. And so they came on board and were, were willing to do some of this heavy lifting with us that took forever. And the four of us went on this big adventure. It was really great to bounce ideas off each other. And, uh, and that was extremely helpful for us at the beginning um, but it took us so long to turn around the vineyard that we, we worked in sort of total anonymity for about 12 years just turning the vineyard around and building the winery mm-hmm. let alone having wines to show so our first vintage went into our own tanks in 2006 even though we bought the property or he bought the property in 93 right before we met so uh, that uh, was a real labor of love and we were so anxious nervous to see if all our hopes and fears could culminate into some wines that were really uh special and different so it's uh it's really been a big adventure well, well that, that frightening timing i'm sure had to be uh, nerve-wracking but i will say that when this rosé mm. hit the market here in our part of the world it was right at the peak of people beginning to understand rosé in the United States. So the timing couldn't have been better. And this wine was all the rage. Yeah, you know, every I mean, it time. it still is. But, I mean, it, it's just like it hit the shelves and people just snapped it up. And then, and I think they got it because the label is beautiful. Mm. It's very classic. It's like a fairy tale almost. It's like too. a medieval etching mm-hmm. type of a thing. And then, and it's so cool. So that's what sucked me in. But then what brought me back yeah. was the fact that the wine is so good. You know, so it's well, not gimmicky. Saying, that, that label has 
about 50 different symbols hidden in it, including a little treasure hunt with some bunny rabbits. If oh, you find cool. You a member of our secret society uh, and all sorts of things. And it's kind of medieval meets modern and, and has lots of, uh, of um, allegories and uh, anachronisms and all sorts of cool stuff. But um, the idea was to show people, by example, that rosé can tick a lot of boxes tastes really great, be refreshing, enjoyable, flirtatious, all the fun stuff that we know and like about rosé, but then not just a pretty face, really follow through with length, complexity, ageability, food friendliness, structure, balance, minerality, uh, ageability, like the, all the vocab that is typically associated with a well-made red or white, but which you really rarely get on a rosé, which is designed usually as more of a cheap and cheery. And I can tell you behind the scenes, there's a reason for that. It all has to do with how you make rosé. And, uh, and normally it's just made as a way to use up leftovers mm -hmm. from your well-made reds. So you, you, press your grapes and you, you try to make your best rosé and then you have this leftover juice and it's just sugar water and you can yeah. throw it away or you can try to sell it for a pittance or you can try you know doctor it a little bit and believe me nowadays it is unbelievable how many things people can do to doctor their rosé it's a bit shocking and i'm not sure people realize that it's become a bit like Photoshop for wine, mm -hmm. where you can strip the color, add the color, change the texture, change the acidity, you know, bring it up, bring it down, all that stuff. It's really a very, very doctored wine. And it it's, sounds uh, like Franken-wine, you know, like a... Franken-wine, absolutely. So most people don't care, but if they do care about their health, um, it's really important to start drinking rosés that are... Uh, not made that way, that are made with a direct press. That means that you only make rosé with that juice and that have, um, if possible, organic, because it's really important to know that they're not putting chemicals in the ground or at least uh, also in the winery that they're not doctoring it with a lot of stuff. So there's always a group of people for whom that stuff is important, uh, that they're thinking about the planet or they're thinking about not wanting to drink a bunch of extra chemicals. Yeah. So there's something for everyone. I mean, isn't that what we love about wine? Is I that would like a chemical slushy. That sounds great. For, 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 there's always a wine for someone, right? Like, there's always something that people can enjoy. And what's important to one person is, and enjoyable to one person is not going to be the same for the other. So our rosé is really for people who care about a wine that is going to be behaving really well with food all year, um, aging well, and having uh, more than just a, a nice, fresh uh, impression, but mm -hmm. also some nice follow through. Um, and also people who care about the work that's gone in to protect all the biodiversity and the ecology around the property. And also uh, the, the work that's gone into not using chemicals in the winery so that, for example, we do the fining with ground organic green pea powder instead of the PVPP, which is commonly used, which is a form of microplastic. And granted, you take it out, but it leaves that little bitter aftertaste and finish, whereas we're using completely natural products. And so you're paying for that as well instead and of- And microplastics uh, are no good. They end up accumulating, bioaccumulating in our, our sea life. And right. uh, yeah, and in our sea salt, it's disgusting. Mm -hmm. What grapes are in this particular rosé? <clears throat> Well, we started out with a paint by numbers. We started with the Grenache Syrah blend just because we were in the Rhone and we had old vines. And that's another thing. We use old vines for rosé, which is kind of 
unusual, and we put it in in wood for uh, in in barrels for about um, three months. Twenty percent cool. of it. So those are, those are very unusual things yeah. that add to the structure and the complexity. But um, we the um, the grape types that we started adding every year, we would play around with some of you know blending other things. And first we added some sensor to bring some floral notes to the red fruit and dark fruit profiles and spices that we were getting from the Grenache and Syrah. And then uh, we added a little bit of our um, brand new Mourvedre, which is really nice because it gives a lovely bite to it, which, uh, which we think is really nice with food in particular. And lastly, we were very excited because we planted some Vermentino, which ah. in the region we call Hol. And that really allows us to brighten it up without having to use tartric acid, which is something that is typically used to brighten rosé. If you think about it, a lot of the best rosés are coming from France and notably the south of France, but it's really hot there. So how is it that they keep that freshness? Well, it's very easy to have your hand slip and add some tartric acid. There's nothing wrong with that. It's used in the food business all the time. However, it's not natural, but most importantly, with time, it starts to separate away from the juice. And that's why they always say to you, oh, you have to drink it right away in that year. But if you don't use tartric acid, it really helps the wines to age well. And you can drink that rosé, uh, you know, for, for several years afterwards. We've even done verticals of our rosé to our first vintages, which is kind of fun. How does that it evolve? So cool. I, love I know. That. I'm wondering how flavor-wise it does evolve. Because as I'm tasting it now, it's got a really great, like, savory finish mm. almost. Well, some of the rosés that I admire the most uh, are aging, you know, are very age-worthy. But they get orange and nutty, and they, they get quite... Uh, oxidative in a, in a beautiful way. I like that burnt orange and all of that. But it's, um, it's been very strange for us. They just kind of stay fresh. They don't lose the fruit. Uh, we found all our wines, and that's going to be a good lead in, I guess, to the reds uh, and the white as well, have this bizarre ability to keep the, fr the fresh fruit profile for a very long time and then start adding some complexity and some depth and some tertiary, you know, secondary tertiary uh, aromas without losing the top. Whereas a lot of other wines, as they age, they get the interesting stuff, but they lose the fruit. Mm -hmm. So I uh, love the fact that they just get more and more layers of aromatic complexity. But the fruit stays, stays strong. But the well, I get that. I do get the aromatics in there and a little, just a slightly perfumey and not, you know, like a floral perfumey and, uh, and, all of those layers of flavor. I mean, now that you explained it to me, Nicole, it, it totally makes sense why there's so many layers in this wine. Um, and, and I love it because we, we always, Julie and I always rave when we talk about rosés. This is always one of our top. And now I understand even better why I like it. And I can taste a difference with those rosés that are manipulated. And it just leaves this weird finish. And I can never really always put my finger on like what is that viscosity that's something that's just lingering and it's, it's horrible like olean in it you yeah know? remember the olean non the fat that doesn't absorb in <laughs> yeah. your chip you know what i mean remember that yeah yeah I to make it more viscous find is, um, this is a very fun rosé to play around with uh oh. with different food pairings because the 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 versatility that comes from having all those little nuances means that it's a great rosé to have not just with the typical summer salads and all the stuff you you 
often hear about with rosé, but also uh, whenever you have mixed flavors, imagine that you have a buffet or a potluck, or you order the international foods where you have a lot of different flavors at the same time because they don't sequence their meals the way we do, right? With the appetizers, main courses, mm -hmm. or say Lebanese or a Thai or Chinese or um, uh, Indian, where you have to find one, one wine that's gonna go with a whole bunch of stuff in a restaurant setting and you have everybody's ordering different things and you have to choose one wine that's going to go with everything it's a very practical thing so i like to think of it a bit like uh, that little black dress that the ladies Ooh, have which yeah. you can dress up or dress down or you know accessorize differently it definitely so is. something that's going to go with it and if you think about um dressing it up uh, it can even have it with very fancy food in fact it was served at cambridge for a banquet with the queen of england um, for the 500th anniversary of uh, st john's and they had asked for wines to have a tribe wine to choose to pair with the lobster dish and um, everyone had sent in their white wines and we subversively slipped our rosé in there and it got selected to go uh, with the lobster for the queen. So you can see that it's, um, it's a very different animal than the cheap and cheery stuff that you can, uh, for they, sure. they call them porch pounders or yeah. all those things. Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> this, you know, you talk about a, 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 in, in the U.S. when we have a uh, one feast that is hard to pair. Hard. Well, easy to pair with individual dishes, but hard to get one thing to go with everything. Our Thanksgiving, right? this would be a perfect Thanksgiving wine. Yeah, but then you're mentioning yeah. all the different foods. I was thinking like Lebanese and like, oh gosh, this would even work with hummus, oh, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, and then Indian food. Yeah. I mean, it would be tapas, perfect. Great with tapas, olives, yeah. all of that. Yeah. Uh, charcuterie, uh, cheeses. Okay. It's a very practical uh, go-to. And what's nice about the rosé category is that it expands, it's expanded so much. People are starting to understand that they should have different kinds of rosés for different occasions mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that there's a rosé for all seasons you know we call these this category of, of fancy rosés like a winter rosés because it's shorthand for the fact that these are the ones you can drink all year and with food and i recommend drinking it not as cold as the usual ones not the frosty glass uh, there's no point to make it so cold because it's going to cover up a lot of that complexity and the nuance that we've worked so bloody hard uh, to to achieve. So uh, you can really drink it refrigerator cold, but not uh, not with you know freezing. I agree because we that's how we have it, and I can really taste those red fruits. Before we talk about uh, the next wine, let's talk about women in wine in particular. You and your your sister in law. I mean, uh, you guys are are really heavily involved in this brand. What is it like? In France in general, are you an anomaly or are you seeing more uh, faces like yours in the wine scene there? It's an interesting question because I was thinking about it uh, for a panel that I have to um, uh, speak on in a couple of weeks at the American Embassy in Paris about women in wine and, and what's been happening. And when, when we started 25 years ago, uh, one of the things that held me back from jumping in wholeheartedly was that I was concerned I wouldn't be welcome in that world and I would be a fish out of water, um, especially as an American woman in, in the south of France. But things have changed so significantly, uh, in, especially in the last, I'd say, 10 years or, or so. And what you see is a lot of the 
uh, daughters of the uh, current owners of the states have, are making the choice to join the family wineries. And we've been very lucky that that happened for us as well, um, that uh, Danielle, uh, who's now in her uh, early 30s, has been very enthusiastic about jumping in with two feet. She's passionate about viticulture and, and winemaking, and she's going to hopefully one day, um, you know, take over from us. And uh, it's the ecosystem has evolved very significantly. In our region, there's a lovely association, which is a play on words. It's called Femme Women, Vigne Rhone, so Vigne Vine and mm -hmm. Rhone. Rhone is Rhone, so it's kind of vigneron. You may know that that means winemaker. So right. it's a it's happening more and more. And, and as you know, women tend to really enjoy collaborating, and they have that sisterhood that allows them to put a lot of their energy towards collaboration rather than competition. And there are obviously many exceptions, and it's hard to make generalizations. But what we found is in our region that's really helped. The, the younger women coming in to feel welcome uh, into this sisterhood. So I'd say that um, we're really heading for a, a, a transformational change that will likely be uh, long, you know, a long, long term and not uh, easily reversed. So I'm quite, yes. quite, <laughs> quite excited that there's a, a place for women in the wine world now, even on the production side that wasn't there a few years ago. That's great. That's great to hear. And I think we're hearing that more and more. Uh, we've been talking to a lot of uh, female vendors in the U.S. And, you know, the Europe is, is when you talk about old school and in a, in a boys club, you know, especially in the wine business. I, the I original kind of, originator France. of the patriarchy. Yeah, right. <laughs> Europe, well, it's all over the world. True. But, but yeah, we're, we're not. <laughs> we're kind of the same here in America. Oh, my goodness. I'm smelling this white. So now white. we're on to the white. Tell me Holy about heck, the Alio. Alio is mm. one of my little pride and joys. Uh, it's a um, aromatic. It's so great. Very, very aromatic. It's a very, very niche, geeky little wine. It's definitely <laughs> um, more for the, the wine geek circuit for, than for mainstream because a lot of people reach for white wine when they want something wow. simple and refreshing to go with their fish, all that stuff. This is a bit of an outlier. Uh, specifically trying mm. to showcase the fact that it can have this very sticky texture that a lot of our wines have because of the altitude and the, the fact that the, the way the soils work and the varieties we work with, we have wines that always have a, a bit of a chewy, sticky texture. And when you see it in a glass and you swirl it, it looks very viscous and you think, mm -hmm. uh-oh, a typical Southern Rhone white, it's going to be hot and cloying and it's going to have... It's going to be lacking in freshness uh, because most places um, have to choose between making wines that are fresh if they're in the cooler climates and um, and and rich and mouth filling if they're in the southern ones. It's so hard to have both things at one point. So what I'm like, what I'm trying to show you here, is that even though it has all that stickiness and concentration, I'm also going to try to over deliver on the brightness and the way it has um, the minerals and this kind of searing, mouth puckering uh, freshness in the palate. The idea on this wine was showcase all these different layers of aromatics, 
Now look for your top fruit, right? You put your nose in the glass and you take a nice big first whiff of that Provencal fruit bowl. You know, I want you to find oh, peaches yes. and Pe apricots. Oh, I get all stone fruits melon. in that. Yes. <laughs> Stone fruit, absolutely. Mm. Uh, I want you to go to, to to have a sense of place that comes from the fruit that you know you're in Provence, you know you're in a place that has lots of, of sun sunshine and, and nice ripe fruit. But then like a marzipan that almond fruit, thing. Yeah. There's like a little almond marzipan kind of feeling happening. Oh, absolutely. We have we actually have an almond tree grove uh, uh, on the property. And uh, hmm. the almonds are, I'm very impressed, by the way, that you picked up on that. That's <laughs> impressive. Um, and the almonds, the, the, the secondary uh, this level where you should find the warmer notes, this wine spends a whole year in barrel. These are demi-mi, they're big barrels, but they have, um, that's supposed to bring that almond, the honey, the, the warmth, the beeswax, all of that. And then Ooh, this is where it gets exciting for me. As the swine ages, and you've noticed the old vintage on on the one you're drinking, that's 2015. Yeah. So you're holding uh, these, and this is current release is 2015. Oh, yeah. We hold that. We hold them for at least five years because we want you to see all the other stuff. That's the mm -hmm. fun part. When you start noticing that, just like an old white Burgundy, you get those tertiary, the forest mulch and all mm -hmm. the porcini and the mushrooms, you noticed all those totally. warmer notes. Yeah. That's really, really exciting that you can keep the top fruit and get all the weird and wacky darker notes. I always like to think of it as a bit like the ocean. I know in Florida, you, you a lot of people get to go scuba diving and you know how you have the reef with all the top, those mm -hmm. little cute fish at the, that are Mm -hmm. full of colors that are flickering around and that for me is my little fruit bowl and then in the mid-ocean is where you get the big chunky fish right the sharks and whales and dolphins all of that and they kind of float by in the distance you don't want them too close but you're excited when you see them. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and for me that's where the oak should sit okay this is a very european point of view i know uh not everyone would agree with it in some parts of the world they love oak and they feel that putting your nose in a glass of wine and smelling oak is like yummy and pulls you in and wants to meet the wine. For me, the oak should always sit under the fruit. The first impression should be the story of the fruit and where it comes from. And later on, the oak, like makeup or anything, is just supporting cast. It's just there to kind of hold everything together and accentuate the natural beauty of the fruit. And then at the bottom is in the ocean is where you get all those strange... <laughs> yeah, the weird guy with the light thing. Weird, scary yeah. lights and things. And they're kind of scary and kind of cool at the same time. And that's, for me, what what the forest notes should be in a wine. I don't necessarily want to have the weird stuff right away punching me in the nose, but I love catching little notes of things that are a bit unusual and a bit darker, and they, uh, again, accentuate the, the bright fruit. I totally love that. That yes. is such an awesome analogy. It's super good. So does that aging it in the bottle and releasing it a little bit later make that oak fall to the background? Yes, oh, 100%. Cool. Holding on to your wines is very expensive and complicated. Mm -hmm. Oaking your wines is expensive and complicated, right? I love these people who go on about, oh, you know, you shouldn't use oak because it, it conceals the fruit. Yeah, well, that's a nice thing to say it depends a lot the fruit you're working with if you're in the Loire Valley and you have a very delicate fruit and you put a bunch it's like a young 
girl and you stick a bunch of lipstick and makeup on her, it's going to be completely disjointed. But on the other hand, there's a reason why winemakers would be prepared to spend all that time and money putting their wine in barrel. Why in the world would they want to put themselves through that trouble and that expense if it didn't add something interesting or exciting to the wine? And one of the things that it adds is this capacity to age and, and, the, and, and, and some of the complexity. So if you shove your wines out the door too soon, you either give people too much oak up front and then they have to sit around for five years while it finds its place. Well, that never happens in my house. Out. The white is a, a very unusual for food pairing as well. Uh, as I was saying, if you're just having your typical white fish, you know, you have lots of choice, lots of whites, but this one, save it for things that are really hard to pair with. So hmm. anything like cream sauce or things that have... The artichoke and, asparagus thing? Yeah, artichoke, asparagus, all of those notoriously hard to, to pair foods. Truffles, fantastic with all the weirdest uh, pairing combinations. Think of it a bit like those necklaces that we have sometimes with lots of colors, and there's always mm. going to be something that catches on what you're wearing, and so you can wear it with lots of different things. But, you know, it, it's it's so practical for the hard stuff that you shouldn't wear it wasted on the easy things. As soon as she said truffles, I tasted truffles in here. But I also get some tropical. I get like a little pineapple yep. in the back. And... Pineapple, lychee, absolutely. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So, this is girl. perfect. You, have like um, mango you are a very, very good taster. I'm very happy. Well, we both love it. The who pick up on all that stuff. So, White roan grapes are like... And this is mostly uh, Marsan, right? Did you say Marsan or Roussan? Mostly. Roussan and Marsan that love to go together. Any Viognier in that? Nope. Uh, White Grenache. Ooh, not really, not officially, (laughs) but there is that little, little touch. Because it has that, there's something about it that I smell. I'm like, it's got, you know. Wow, master, (laughs) master taster level. That's impressive. What I love is that it does break it down on the label. Well, if I had read. Well, and I'm like, I don't have my glasses. Yeah, I'm on. getting. It's, it's it's like it was aged for maybe eight months. I'm just guessing. <laughs> it says it right there. It's so great. Um, but I like discovering it like this without uh, yeah l- reading the back. And well, then you're like, not American then because it's like the Americans are the ones that want like here's the entire recipe of what's in this bottle. Yeah. Excluding chemicals. <laughs> they don't demand that chemicals be included. Right. But they want to know the full breakdown percentage-wise of what grapes. So this will probably really help in the American market for sure. Mm-hmm. Whereas in France, it's like, oh, it's from there? Well, then it'll be like this. And right. you, they know what's going to work. So, yeah, it's that's always been really interesting. Wine. I mean, only a couple thousand bottles. And, uh, and so it's a very – it's when I say niche and geek, it's really for people who – like to have wines that are not carbon copies of anything they're going to find anywhere else. So it's great to stump a sommelier or that wine friend who thinks they know everything. Yeah. That's our they favorite sport. Blind tasting. <laughs> they might not know. They'll never guess it's from the Rhone. They, they'll, it'll always sort of bring its own little iconography of winemaking. And so professional wine people get very excited when they see, uh, when they find a wine that's not like something they've had before. If you think about uh, the music business or whatever, and you suddenly have a, a young artist who has a sound that's something that's mm. very special and different so uh they get they get excited about wines like these but they're very they're really not mainstream how does Mont Ventoux in that area where you are lend itself to reds because I know you've got a couple of, of reds in your portfolio that are distributed that we can get in the U.S. Uh, before we let you go let's we'd be remiss if we didn't mention those 
Oh, the, the flagships, absolutely. Thanks mm -hmm. for making time for them because they're yeah. the real raison d'etre of this whole project. Um, the, the joy of, of the Ventoux is that the average temperatures are much cooler than um, in this, on the same latitude because of that altitude, right? Just like everywhere else in the mountains, et cetera, you have those, those cooler temperatures, but you have another thing that's very important, which is a big temperature variation between day and night, as you would typically find in mountains anywhere. And that has a big effect on the transformation of the grapes. That means you have a, a longer growing season and a, a later harvest, usually October instead of September. And that uh, drawing out the growing season gives the phenolic compounds longer to develop and you get more uh, nuance than you often get in a very hot, hot place. And so it's great for getting a lot of finesse at the same time as the opulence and the fruit. So if you want wines that really have the complete mouth-filling opulence and for you acidity or brightness is not something that's important, then the Ventoux is probably not your first go-to area. You might prefer Chateauneuf-du-Pape or places where it's like more of a convection oven. However, if <laughs> like that you like to have the two things at once and you want the opulence, but also keeping that little zinginess on the palate, uh, Ventoux is a great uh, go-to region for that. And in our property in particular, being so high up, being way up at about almost, uh, well, 1800 and, and to about 2000 feet. In that area, it's quite extreme. You get um, <clears throat> a type of fruit that is not at all uh, like the one you get even 10 minutes away in the valley because we'll have snow when the other guys have rain. Uh, it's a very different environment. So what that means for the top reds is we decided to try to showcase instead of having what all the advisors tell you, put all your best grapes in one cuvee parker or something, and then you take everything else and you chuck it into some second wine and shove it out the door. We wanted to do the exact opposite. We wanted to show you the full wingspan of what you can do in this very unusual little microclimate way up at the top of our mountain. So you have Abelard and Eloise named after the most famous medieval lovers. They're like the most, the, the Romeo and Juliet of France, that an incredible love story. He was a famous, successful uh, philosopher, thinker, and she was his disciple, half his age, brilliant as well, passionate about theology. And you can see where this is all going. Uh, they have this illicit romance that all ends very badly, uh, but um, they end up changing history, he revolutionizing thought in their era, and she goes on to run the entire Abbey system in France. It's one of the original power couples of history, like Antony and Cleopatra. And the idea of naming the wines after them, apart from the fact that it's a ninth century priory, and so we have these medieval roots that we sort of built, fought back to life, is that we're trying to show you the two faces of the vineyard, the sort of masculine, feminine, but each one putting a spotlight on a slightly different aspect of where we are. So uh, Eloise being the Syrah base with a bit of Grenache and Abelard being the Grenache base with a bit of Syrah and together uh, showing you very, very different styles. So Eloise showing you the Northern Rhone Syrah, the elegance, the finesse, the restraint that you typically get in a cooler climate Syrah. And then Abelard showing you that opulence, the concentration, and the kind of masculine muscular Grenache that you get in, in a 
in a, in a very high altitude with old vines like we have. So that duality lends itself to really interesting pairing combinations. Eloise, we might say, uh, is with lighter flavors. So I like to joke that Eloise likes feathers mm -hmm. and Abelard likes fur. She likes <laughs> duck, love it. Meats, turkey, all of those white meats. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you can even have her with lamb and you can have Abelard with lamb too. That's probably one of the best crossover foods. And then Abelard is, as you go to the other end of the spectrum, things that are very concentrated, salty, spicy, gamey, greasy or you know fatty not not greasy but like that kind of mouth filling richness then you want a wine that has more tannic structure more mouth filling and that's where i would i would always reach for abelard so that way you kind of cover the full spectrum of, of flavors with these two wines and i love to serve them side by side like at a dinner party if you're trying to choose a wine that's going to make everybody happy instead of having two bottles of the same wine and some sort of compromised choice that's neither mm -hmm. to this nor to that, you can give everyone two glasses, a bottle of each, and then they can have a little pour and decide which one they prefer based on whether they like the more mouth-filling style or, or the more elegant sort of restrained style on the wine. I remember we tried that at that tasting that mm -hmm. we met you at, and we tried those two, and you were asking me, so how would you describe this versus that? And, and I tried them both, and I was correct in that I guess the feminine one. <laughs> so I'm not bragging, but it is true that they are very different from one another in spite of their similarities. But it was really kind of, it is a cool study. Do all of the labels have these little um, uh, hide and seek kind of uh, puzzles in them? Oh my goodness, that's even more exciting. I don't know if you remember Highlights Magazine in the dentist's office. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, or Nina, you know, the Hirschfeld and the Sunday papers and the New York Times mm -hmm. looking for I love that those games. And the idea was that uh, there's so much going on at this little vineyard, even though we're small and far away from everywhere. Uh, we feel that there's just such a confluence of exciting factors in the soils and the, the, the place, all the, the people who come there. It's like a hothouse for experimentation and uh, more like a wine lab than than just um a winery because so, we love collaborating we love cooperating we love learning from other people we love welcoming people from all over the world we have a hospitality uh we've turned around the ninth century priory and made it into a a, a place to to welcome guests uh, sort of a wine retreat it's lots of fun we have a wine school so uh, does so this little um, this little activity. flock of birds flying off in the distance does that yeah. represent you getting the word out <laughs> <laughs> that's me also in the front that's me on my cell phone spinning plates and uh, uh that's always having so much uh so much to do at, at once that's what happens when you have a small company yeah it and does. that's why i'm so grateful to people who make time to get to know these wines to try them to talk about them it's such a help for me because i don't have this giant team of marketing people around the world and god knows what and uh and I really prefer to be spending our time trying to figure out how to make wines that when you do try them are going to stand out and have something special to say about a very unique little enclave uh, rather than um, just taking any shortcuts. So, so that's uh, something I'm really grateful to you, to you for. Well, I, I do have to say that your efforts um, have resulted in uh, this wine becoming kind of one of the darlings of the United States wine business. I mean, in the cool shops, I mean, the ones where wine geeks go 
you will almost always find um, these wines Chien if it's Bleu. available in that area. So, I mean, yeah, like the good, the people, if you, if you find this on a shelf, if you find this wine on a shelf, you know you're in a good wine shop. No, totally, because you know? of everything that Nicole has told us. Thank you for breaking it down, and thank you for giving us such a great education. And, you know, we hear a lot of these things so many times, and, and then sometimes it's like the third or fourth, like, oh, you connected some dots, and the light bulb went on on some things, and, and, and you did that for us today and hopefully for everybody listening. And we love your wine. Thank you for taking time to be with us. And thank you for oh, making it. are so terrific. You have such a good energy, and between the two of you, you really bring a lot of that really happy Florida sunshine <laughs> even to the more remote corners of Europe uh, and and you radiate with with kindness and knowledge and and uh, curiosity and and the wine world needs more people like you who have mm. the open-mindedness to venture off the beaten path and and give some time to some of the smaller wineries trying to punch above their weight instead of just the big go-to brands that everybody already mm -hmm. knows that are our yeah. household names so it's it's incredibly appreciated and i certainly hope that anybody listening to this who does end up trying the wines and does end up finding the little bunny rabbits that are hidden <laughs> in the label there's five little white bunnies and one black hair it's actually a symbol for all the work we do to manage the ecosystem we have a whole program with scientists from around the world and we have um, um it's called sustainability we work with bees oh yeah you got a beekeeper yeah the, the the cover crops to help the, the bring the microorganisms to help transmit the sense of place it's, it's part of a whole project to manage this complex ecosystem and the bunnies are halfway between the big predators and the small animals and so it's a symbol for the work that we do to try to work in harmony with that nature and so even though it's a it's a little game it does represent something important to us and, and and hopefully important to the planet so if you just get in touch with me and you just tell me that you find your bunnies i have a lovely little prize that i pop in the post for you oh so nice oh, okay i'm gonna start yeah. those yeah, bunnies. I'm gonna look yeah. for them. get your daughter on it too she's gonna yeah. Mariana, my daughter will find it bunny club our secret society <laughs> and there's even a secret handshake oh, oh okay i, I like Good that enough. well we will learn that when we come visit you or the next time you come back to florida yeah we look forward to being able Please to travel visit. and taste together again in person and cheers to women in wine by the way yeah, and P.S., yeah. this white is one of my new favorites in yeah. life. Oh, I love that sound. This is absolutely my jam. Mm -hmm. This is, if, if someone were to custom make a wine for me, this would be it. That's it? Yeah, right, right here. We got it. white. I think I said that last time I met you. Anyway, I'm sorry. We won't keep you any longer. Nicole Rolette from Chen Bleu, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We a lovely spending time with you and seeing you again via Zoom. We can't wait to see you in person again. You look great. Thank yeah. you, lovely ladies. This has been so much fun. Thank you. All right, thanks. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Calligan. Great Minds theme music is from the band Victor and Penny. The song is You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To by Cole Porter. <laughs> to get in touch, check out greatminds.org. For Julie Glenn, I'm Gina Birch. Thank you so much for listening. Paradise, you come home to where you love.